of Job. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the chairback Bibles and you'll find tonight's text on page 432. We are coming to the end of our studies on these conversations between Job and his, at least initially, well-intended counselors. And Lord willing, after tonight, we just have two studies left before we get to Job meeting God in the whirlwind. So we're picking up the pace quite a bit in this study in the next two as tonight we want to look at chapter 22 through 26. But let me get us going by reading the first part of Job's reply. This is after Eliphaz speaks for the last time. So let's look at chapter 23. Let me read these 17 verses for us and then... I'll pray for our time and and we'll begin. So God speaks to us once again through his perfect word saying this. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way, and I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind, therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider him, I am in dread. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because of thick darkness that covers my face. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we ask for your Spirit's help this evening as we I come to these chapters trusting that you meet us by your word and spirit, that you speak to us by your word and spirit, and so we pray that you would build us up in the image of Jesus Christ, that you would conform us evermore to his likeness. In our seasons of suffering and affliction and difficulty and hardship, wherever we find ourselves even this night, may your sovereignty be a sweetness to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. According to almost universal acclaim, a man named Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, is understood to be the greatest theologian that's ever lived since the first century. And as most great theologians are prone to do, Augustine was a careful thinker. He was a deep thinker. He was, you might even say, an inveterate thinker. And there's a story told at one time when he was contemplating the mystery of God as Trinity, Kids, that central truth of the Christian faith that our God is triune, he's one essence in three persons. And he was having great difficulty understanding how this concept of God's triune nature can actually square with other things that we know to be true. 
It was giving him such a hard time that supposedly he was considering just rejecting it altogether. And then on one day, he was finding himself at the seashore. And he noticed, children, that someone, this child, had dug a hole there on the beach. And he was going back and forth, this little boy, with this tiny little seashell. And he was grabbing some water out of the ocean and bringing it over and dumping it into the hole and going back and filling it up and putting it into the hole. And Augustine, rather curious, he looked at the child and said, well, what are you doing? And the child said, I'm trying to put the ocean into my hole. And it was seemingly in that moment that something clicked for Augustine. He realized that some of his difficulty in comprehending the Trinity was he was trying to put the infinite into his finite mind, something that is genuinely impossible. That it's true that you can apprehend something about God's incomprehensibility, but you'll never be able to fully comprehend it in the way that at least Augustine was attempting to. That God in His mercy does condescend to reveal Himself to us, but sometimes the way in which He reveals Himself to us doesn't always make sense. God's condescension to His people is not according to how we think it ought to be. And the only reason I tell you that is we come to these chapters tonight in our study of Job, and we see Job and his friends, Eliphaz and Bildad, speaking to each other one last time. And very much at the heart of their disagreement, their discussion that does go past each other in the chapters before us, is how can you make sense of God's sovereignty in Job's suffering? What we're going to see is that Eliphaz in particular, but Bildad as well, Uh, They think they can fully comprehend and therefore expertly explain that intersection between God's sovereignty and Job's suffering. But Job all along has said, hasn't he, that their trademark counseling system, it's too safe. It doesn't always fit the way that they think it does, God's sovereignty in the midst of his suffering. So we're wanting to pay attention to along the way tonight, how is it that a sufferer thinks about God's suffering? sovereignty? Is it something that will trouble Job? Or is it something that will comfort Job? And certainly you can understand how that's an ordinary question that people going through suffering have to deal with, especially people going through suffering that believe that God is sovereign. If He ordains all things, governs all things, rules over all things. Well, is that truth of God's sovereignty in your suffering something that tends to trouble you most? or comfort you most. Now maybe you've been a part of a conversation before where you have two different parties represented in the conversation and they've spoken back and forth and back and forth, arguments, discussions, debates along the way, and somewhere near the perhaps end of the conversation, even though they're still talking, you realize that neither side is ever going to sway the other side, but they're still talking. And that's kind of what's happening here at this point in the narrative of Job. They've been going back and forth and back and forth. And if you have had eyes to see and ears to hear, you realize that Eliphaz and Bildad, they're never going to convince Job of, of their side of the council. And in the same way, Job is not going to convince them, but they're still talking to each other. And so I want us to see our chapters in three simple sections tonight. First, Eliphaz's wickedness. That's chapter 22. And then as Job responds, we'll see something of Job's faithfulness. And in the final two chapters, which are rather brief, uh, we'll see something of God's greatness. So wickedness, faithfulness, and greatness are simple words to mark off 
our way. And the reason I say Eliphaz's wickedness is because how he begins this last word to Job in the book. Notice verse 2 and 3 of chapter 22. Eliphaz asked Job, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Now what does he say in students? But that God is this deity that is dispassionate. Meaning, Job, uh, why do you think God cares anything about you and the way you say God is caring about you? I mean, could you ever bring God pleasure? Could you ever bring a smile to God's face? He really is quite dispassionate towards you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your declarations of blamelessness. And Eliphaz, notice verse 4 and 5, now goes so far to be quite on the opposite end of where he began. He says, is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? Job, there is no end to your iniquities. Now, if you've been with us in our study of Job, you don't need to turn back to chapter 4, but you might remember it was in chapter 4 that this man, presumably the oldest of the bunch since he speaks first, Eliphaz first approached Job with with counsel and advice after a a week of sitting there in the midst of Job's suffering and misery. And Eliphaz all along has been the kindest of the counselors to Job. But now, at the end of the counseling conversations, what is he saying but that Job, you're nothing but sin upon sin, iniquity after iniquity, transgression just leads to more transgression. And if you just scan your eyes through what he says in verse 6 through 11, you'll see he tends to enumerate. He goes on to enumerate, to explain these supposed sins that have come from Job, saying, notice verse 6, For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. Now, why that's interesting is because it is genuinely the exact opposite of what Eliphaz said the first time around when talking to Job. Because in chapter 4 he said this, Behold, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. You have made firm the feeble knees. Just a few cycles of a conversation back and forth has moved Eliphaz from, Yes, Job, you've done something to deserve this. But certainly from my perspective, you are a morally upright man. He's gone from there all the way over to, yes, you absolutely deserve this. And nothing good ever comes from you, Job. Why would God care about you? And then again, if you just scan your eyes through the next section of chapter 22, he begins speaking about God's sovereignty, his greatness, as though why would God worry about you? In verse 21, he comes to his final counsel about how Job is to respond And it's altogether predictable, isn't it? He says in verse 21, 22, Agree with God and be at peace, thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth. Lay up his words in your heart. And this gold of the Almighty will return to you, is what he says in subsequent verses. It is 
the trademark counseling system in its final display to Job. You are thoroughly and utterly sinful. Of course, therefore, God is disciplining you in your suffering for your sin. Job, all you need to do is repent and you'll be restored. And so I've thought along the way in the course of these chapters and frankly years of thinking about Job, preaching through it even before, what is it that moves Eliphaz across that spectrum from really being on team Job almost at the beginning in chapter 4 to now being the exact opposite? It's as though he's kind of sat Job down in his interrogation chair, summoned him to Eliphaz's table, and like this bad copy shows up and immediately slams down there on the table this file, thick file in Eliphaz's mind of all the evidence for Job's guilt. Job, you just need to admit it. Look at all of this. You clearly are guilty according to what you have done. Why is it that in the course of just a few conversations that Eliphaz has moved so far? Well, I think the answer, if you look through the book, perhaps the most obvious answer, and maybe it's the most simplest, but nevertheless, it's the one that's there, is that Eliphaz has become altogether impatient with Job. We've seen that. Every time Job speaks, his friends respond, and their impatience meter is getting to a boiling point. They can't stand his responses. They can't stand his rejoinders. They can't deal with what he says is actually true. So they get impatient. They get impatient. And what do they do in the impatience but lose any ability to consider otherwise? Lose any ability to think wisely? And don't you know how impatience always impairs wisdom? I wonder how many of you parents, perhaps with young children, even this last week, have realized impatience impairs your ability to instruct well? When has impatience ever given birth to the child of wisdom and discernment? Perhaps it's even that way in your workplace. You find impatience rising, the meter increasing, and rarely does it ever bring this calm, collected disposition of counsel to someone who needs it. Such is Eliphaz's wickedness by the end of the book. And so Job now begins to respond in chapter 23, and it's a response that in every way hinges on a few different things within him, the first of which is a desire for fellowship. Notice what he says in verse 3 of chapter 23, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come to his seat. Skip down to verse 6, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. Eliphaz, he would pay attention to me. Eliphaz has said, he doesn't care about you, Job, whatsoever. And Job says, no, I I desire fellowship with God because I know this. He he will pay attention to me. And in the course of the next few verses, he again is speaking about this kind of legal context of wanting to make arguments before God. But there at its core in verse 6 is actually something deeper, perhaps even more basic It's not a desire to be with God in order to make an argument and plead his case. It's as much as knowing that it's in God's presence. Things are going to be okay. But here's Job's challenge. He says, I can't find God anywhere. Look at verse 8 and 9. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Wherever I go, I can't find him. Wherever I look, I don't see him. 
And isn't that often what happens with people in situations of suffering? There's a desire to be with God because, you know, with God, there's comfort, there's sweetness, there's mercy. I've looked over there, but he's not there. Uh, you, you tell me to come here, but I can't find him there either. No matter where you go, no matter where you turn, it seems like God isn't there. And Job again appeals to his clean conscience as his confidence. You'll see verse 11 and 12. He says, My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. You know, those are good verses, students, for you to perhaps circle and meditate on later this week. Is your conscience before God one so clean? Wash perhaps even in the cleansing power of Christ's blood that you could stand before God, stand before friends even, and say, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. All along, Job has responded to his friends, hasn't he? saying, no, you're saying I deserve this, but my conscience is clean before the Lord. There's nothing I have done to deserve this. I do hope uh, you, you know the value of a tender conscience. Perhaps conversely and negatively, you know the danger of an accused conscience. I've told many preachers before, it's a horrible thing to preach with an accused conscience. To speak for God, to God's people, and all the while your conscience is plaguing you. Wouldn't that be the exact same thing with Job as he's defending himself all along the way, recognizing, well... Internally, I know exactly where I have gone wrong. And if they only knew what I knew, then they would never think as highly of me as they actually do. What does your conscience say to you? It's his confidence. And then it moves at the end of chapter 23 from his confidence to his reverence. You see verse 13 and 14. He is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires that he does, God will complete what he appoints for me and many such things are in my mind. No one can stop God in his sovereignty. And here's the complexity that means the friend's counseling system is unsafe. That God isn't predictable in the way that he ordains things in the world. Certainly not in the predictability of Job's counseling friend's system. That God seems to do things that are out of the ordinary. God seems to do things that you wouldn't expect him to do. And that's why his attention turns in chapter 24 to one long, rambling illustration of that reality. It's something that we've talked about in previous chapters in our study of Job. He's just talking about how blessing seems to come to the wicked. Because according to the friend's counseling system, well, wicked get what they deserve. And Job is again going to say, if you just kind of scan your eyes through those sections of chapter 24, no, I, there are plenty of stories, guys, of wicked people actually getting blessedness. And so chapter 24 is actually Job's longing for final judgment. Notice verse 1 of chapter 24. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days, and he just continues to pull forth all of these stories, all of these illustrations of recognizing that it's not always true in God's sovereignty that in this life, at that moment, wicked people get what they deserve. But he says that time is going to come. What we refer to as the final judgment. Skip down to verse 20 of chapter 24. The womb forgets them, the worm finds them sweet, and they are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like 
a tree. Skip down to verse 24. They are exalted a little while and are then gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others, and they are cut off like heads of grain. Verse 25, he says, prove me wrong. But with God's sovereignty and its surprising nature, perhaps its complexity as well, will it trouble you in the midst of suffering? Will it comfort you in the midst of suffering? And then in verse 25, Bildad the blunt shows up. Uh, what you need to know about Bildad is he seems to be a friend that perhaps many of you in the room tonight might have. It's the kind of person perhaps in your life, family or friend, that always just has to give their two cents to whatever is said. You know, you could call Bildad, I guess in some ways, Tommy two cents. Because he's always just going to kind of give his final word. He's the last friend, usually always talking. He's, nothing, he's not going to add to the conversation, but he's always going to say what he thinks. And what comes, if you'll notice, if your Bible's in front of you in a very short chapter, is an utterly reverent series of words, but altogether irrelevant series of words. Do you know it's possible to offer that to friends? Counsel, logic, biblical reasoning, utterly reverent, yet altogether irrelevant to the situation. Notice what he says, verse 2 through 6, dominion and fear with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who's born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less a man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. There is no one who is righteous, Job, not one. You deserve everything you have gotten. He intends, Bildad does, he intends to say something about God's greatness. But you'll notice as we turn to our final chapter tonight, in chapter 26, Job actually takes what Bildad has just said and said, let me tell you about God's greatness. Greatness that shatters this safe system. You see, he says in verse 2 of chapter 26, how you have helped him who has no power how you have saved the arm that has no strength, how you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. Significantly, notice verse 4, with whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out of you? Remember that we've said before in past weeks and studies of Job that these counseling friends, in ways they don't realize, they have become pawns of Satan means by which Satan is tempting Job to do that which Satan told God Job would do, which is curse him because of his suffering. Repent only that he would get all the material blessings back. And it's almost as though in verse 4, Job begins to see through. Whose words are you really speaking? Whose advocate are you really? Perhaps Bildad, so far, Eliphaz, it isn't God's advocate that you actually are. 
So if you just scan your eyes through the next few verses, notice the subject and verbs that show up, perhaps verse 7 and following. He stretches and hangs. He binds up the waters in thick clouds. He covers the face of the moon and spreads it out over his cloud. He's inscribed a circle above the face of the waters. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab, which is this ancient mythical sea creature. And by his wind the heavens were made fair, and his hand pierced the fleeing serpents, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. I had a student one time show me his study Bible, and we were working through Job, and he had rather large margins in his study Bible, you know, good for making notes. And it was somewhere near verse 14 that he had a a four-letter word with an exclamation point, all caps, boom. And here's his point. If you read through everything, the Lord has created the universe by the power of his word. You see these canyons, you see these mountains, you see these seas, you see God control everything in the universe. And it's just a little bit of who God is. It's just the outskirts of his ways. Sometimes we rejoice, don't we, in how creation shouts forth the glory of God, which it does. But actually, in terms of God's immensity, it's just God whispering something of the greatness of who he is. This God is so great in his sovereignty, your simple system, it doesn't make sense of who God is. Thus the question that ends our text, verse 14 at the end, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? When was the last time you or perhaps someone in your own life in the midst of a season of suffering said, this doesn't? make any sense. Job is saying, it doesn't make any sense. We were speaking with the kids a few days ago about plans for summer vacation. Uh, We were showing them a few places that, Lord willing, we will get to go and visit in the mountains where we tend to go and visit family up in the Rocky Mountain areas and Emily was speaking of this one mountain pass that uh, we were looking forward to drive through and around and over. And uh, she made some comment about, you know, I- I'm going to drive that though, not you. And if you know anything about our relationship, I drive everywhere. And by everywhere, I mean everywhere. And she knows though I don't like heights. And so when we drive through these mountain passes, we kind of hurtle through the mountain passes because Jordan's got to get out of the mountains very quickly, otherwise he's terrified of driving through the mountains. So we pulled up this video of this Beartooth Pass, a place that, Lord willing, I will drive in a few weeks' time. And even in that moment, I started to get this antsiness about me, thinking about being on the left side of the van, looking over the right, and there's nothing but a sheer cliff all the way down for hundreds and hundreds of feet. And the reason I tell you that is because it's almost as Job, in the midst of this counseling conversation with his friends, he's come to the edge of the cliff of God's sovereignty. And what I want you to see here at the end are two things about God's sovereignty in the midst of Job's suffering. The first of which is God's sovereignty demands our fear. There is a genuine spiritual antsiness about Job. Flip back to chapter 23. He said, who is God but the unchangeable being and who can turn him back? And look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence 
when I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Can I submit to you tonight that you truly don't know who God is if he's never actually terrified you in his sovereignty? Chronicles of Narnia, of course. He's good, but he isn't safe. The Lion King, Aslan. Have you ever looked into the nature of who God is? That he does ordain everything in the universe? And you've gotten spiritually to that cliff. And have you looked over the side and realized, that's quite fearsome and awesome, this great God. Yet it's not the fullness of the story, is it? It's not the only quality of God that we want to magnify, because you'll see even the contrast. Look at verse 17 of chapter 23. He says, Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because of thick darkness that covers my face. It's as though he stares into the reality of God's sovereignty, and he realizes, yes, indeed, it's true. It's terrifying. But ultimately for Job, it does provide him comfort. Because if you glance over to earlier in the chapter, you see in verse 8 and 9, which we read just a few minutes ago, he says, I'm looking everywhere to find God, and I can't find him anywhere. But look at verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, you see the language of God's sovereignty and his suffering. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. That's faith latching on to the goodness of who God is. It's faith, certainly, that calls us to latch on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's already said, hasn't he? Verse 7 of chapter 23. There in God's presence, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forevermore by my judge. There is someone we know in the fullness of Scripture that has gone before Job into God's presence. Someone welcome there. Someone to whom God has given his sovereign Glorious attention. Someone who pleads the case for sinners like you and me. Someone who intercedes for sufferers like you and me. Son of God, whom the Father delights to listen to. Who knows your frame, knows you are needy, knows but we are but dust. And he knows the way that you currently take. Maybe he is trying you this week, this month, this year. That his sovereignty should generate fear, holy fear. But recognize that it's in his sovereignty in Jesus Christ that he's drawn near. That you might come out as gold as you cling to the anchor of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would give us a measure of grace this night as we confess our sin to you, that too often in our days and weeks our thoughts are not directed to you, who ordains all of our steps, who has brought everything into our life for your glory and our good. And so help us, we pray, in the midst of wherever we find ourselves, to commit ourselves to your sovereign hand of mercy and kindness, knowing that whatever you have brought towards us, situations and circumstances are for our good, and that we can cling to Jesus Christ, who is the fairest among 10,000, the one who holds us fast. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.